I'm Dawn Durham and welcome to Patent Pod. We're here attending the National Autism Conference speaking with Tim Vollmer. Thanks Tim for stopping by Patent Pod today. We appreciate it. Sure thing. Happy to be here. So let me ask you, when we think about your work with um, functional analysis and severe problem behavior, we know that's influenced a lot of people in the field. What would you say are some of the key points to those teachers um, out there in regards to managing severe problem behavior? How can they, how can they go about doing that? Okay, well I think the, the most general key point is to understand that such behavior can change. A lot of times people do not have the background um, to help them understand that that behavior is not a fixed part of the individual but it's something that can be altered. Um, and a significant percentage of such behavior is actually um, socially reinforced and it is um, therefore controlled in some sense by the consequences that it produces mm -hmm. and a lot of times those consequences are inadvertently provided by adults in the environment. They're well-meaning, they're trying to do the right thing for the student or the individual um, but sometimes it's um, actually feeding into the behavior or strengthening uh, the behavior. So in my group we sort of uh, follow a general principle that I uh, summarize as minimize, maximize. And what that means is minimize one's reaction, minimize one's change in behavior in response to the student's behavior when it's the problem behavior, but maximize your response when something you'd like to see occurs. So that sets up a situation that we call differential reinforcement in, in my field. and. Um, the results of those types of interactions can be very fluid and very natural within a classroom context. It doesn't require using timers or counters or anything else. It's just, a, I view it as a way of life. Mm -hmm. If you just um, uh, maximize your reaction and reinforcement when um, appropriate, desirable behavior occurs and minimize um, such reactions when the problem behavior occurs, the student learns uh, more often than not um, that the appropriate behavior will uh, pay off and have a better consequence for them. So one of the things I want to highlight that you said was behavior is not fixed. It can change yes. and we need to be cautious about feeding into that behavior and this mm -hmm. idea of this minimize maximize kind of idea um, or concept may help to alleviate and de-escalate some situations that are poor behavior or behaviors we don't want um, but increase the behaviors we do want. Correct, yes. Okay. So your inner, your clinical interactions is really what is well known in the field that, that people really kind of go for it and, and um, pay attention to the, to the clinical sessions that you have and the experience that you have. When we think about establishing cooperation with interacting with students with autism, mm -hmm. what are some suggestions you have in doing that? Well, usually when uh, professionals and teachers and other individuals in school systems are working with students with autism, it is in some kind of instructional or learning mm -hmm. capacity. So by and large, most of our interactions involve some kind of instruction or another. Um, unfortunately, a, a substantial percentage of severe problem behavior is actually escape behavior. And um, the uh, student essentially 
finds something about the instructional interaction to be aversive. And when you think about the word escape or avoid, it really means to move away from or to stay away from. So uh, the approach I encourage is to try to reverse that. I, I yeah. encourage teachers and professionals and, and behavior analysts and other therapists to think about it from a perspective of, I want the child or the student to approach me, not to move away from me. Mm -hmm. So what can I do that would result in the student approaching me? It's, um, similar advice could be given to parents as well because parents certainly wouldn't want their child to want to move away from them. They would want th their child to move toward them and, and stay near them. And so the way that that is typically done is through the use of a lot of positive reinforcement. Mm -hmm. So paying attention to what the student enjoys doing, what the student enjoys talking about if they're verbal and social, um, what they like to do, and you can do that with them and embed instruction in that activity. Or you can uh, take turns with them doing instructional activity and uh, providing a lot of positive reinforcement. And so um, to the extent that I have been successful in gaining cooperation with students, it's because I always keep that in mind at the beginning. If I see a student moving away from me, I think that's a bad sign. And I want to start by getting the student um, moving toward me because that indicates they like being around me, they find it reinforcing to be around me. Um, there's an, the, uh, another way I think of um, thinking about your question and uh, a key word in there is cooperation. Mm -hmm. um, especially in complex environments like school systems, school in classrooms, uh, cooperation goes uh, beyond just the individual therapist and the student or the individual teacher and the student. Um, in the case of most individuals with autism spectrum disorders, um, there is an entire group of people, a team, including the student, including the student's parent or parents, um, including the teachers, including the professionals, who all must cooperate. And mm -hmm. I see at times that um, the best interest of the student sometimes breaks down at that level. And it's very important, I believe, for all of those team members to recognize their scope of expertise, but also recognize the scope of expertise of the other contributors mm -hmm. and make sure that everyone has their chance to uh, express what they believe would be um, in the best interest of the student and then work out what that overall program or plan would be. And the, the best um, individualized plan is of course one where everyone's expertise is, is utilized. Uh, so there is that more um, uh, layered uh, meaning to the word cooperation, I believe, but on an individual basis, I, I certainly think it means um, developing a relationship with the student and um, resulting in the student approaching the adult or therapist as opposed to moving away from or avoiding. 
So we want to change from escaping to approaching. I think that's yes. a, those are two words we want to continue to say. If they're sure. moving away, that's a sign they don't want to be near us. We yes. need to change that so they want to approach us. Right. But what you had said regarding cooperation is not just between the individual student and one adult in the room, therapist, teacher, whomever, but it's cooperation amongst the whole team yes. and making sure that all areas of expertise and everyone's mindset is really involved in planning for the student, including the student's expertise about how their own feelings and how they want to adjust to the parents, mm -hmm. to all stakeholders. And I think that's a key piece to keep in mind um, when we're faced with um, any student with behavior problems, severe behavior problems, we need to remember uh, to think about er all the players at the table. Yeah, and interestingly, in, in my role, when I um, f frequently come in as a consultant, uh, I am, in a sense, in the middle of, mm. of the discussion where um, parents or other care providers might have a perspective, um, members of the school team might have a perspective, and coming in um, as a separate set of eyes, what I frequently see is that everybody's right in some way. Mm -hmm. And so uh, the, uh, uh, an approach that we try to take is to get everyone to see what parts of the message are um, <coughs> critical for everyone to agree mm -hmm. upon and to bring it back to what we're talking about is what is in the best interest of the student. And mm -hmm. we have to keep our eyes on that as a, as a group and as a team. Bringing, the for, bringing the, everyone's thoughts to the student, because the student should be in the front of all of our minds. Right. And we might lose sight of that when we have so many people at the table. And, and you said at some point, someone's right all the time, right? Mm. There's the little aspects that are always yeah. correct um, and good knowledge to have, but we do need to work together to keep the, what's best for the student in mind. Yeah, and certainly staying within the evidence base. Mm -hmm. uh, we don't want to step outside of what has been proven to be best practices for the, the student. Absolutely. I want to think um, kind of historically now. So when we think about the work um, that influences development and implementation of human and effective behavioral interventions, uh, particularly with individuals with autism, kind of thinking historically, what have been some of the most um, significant pieces of work that really led to our understanding mm -hmm. of development and implementation of interventions? Well, I'll, I'll keep my response within my own field because okay. I'm sure there were um, equally significant um, uh, steps taken in, in other professions, but the ones I'm most familiar with are in applied behavior analysis, and I, I think going back to the inception of the field of applied behavior analysis in really the late 1950s into the, late, into the 1960s, and then with the onset of our primary journal, um, the Journal of Applied Behavior Analysis mm -hmm. in 1968, I think it's really fascinating to go back uh, all of, uh, after all of those years, over 50 years now, and look at the substantial amount of behavior change that can be um, induced by the use of positive reinforcement. It's been replicated thousands and thousands of times. And the size of the effect, or the effect size within an individual uh, participant or subject in a study is absolutely enormous you don't really see that in, mm -hmm. in other uh, approaches. So I think one of the critical uh, uh, developments that happened within behavior analysis was when we made that transition to socially meaningful behavior, but continued to examine the effects of our procedures on an individual basis. We can look at the results for any individual uh, participant in our studies, in our applications, in our clinical work, 
and point to the change in behavior through our, mm -hmm. our data analysis. So that I think is, is a very significant, um, uh, was a very significant uh, step in the field. Another one you already alluded to, which is the functional analysis of behavior. Um, not so much in the sense that I believe that, for example, a teacher should have to learn how to do a functional analysis of behavior, but more from a scientific standpoint, I believe that the functional analysis has taught us that a lot, a significant percentage of the behavior is learned operant behavior that is influenced by its, uh, by its consequences, as I mentioned at the outset of this discussion. And so that the functional analysis literature has taught us that in such a way that we can use that information, similar to how we know that to stop the spread of a cold or a virus, one should wash your hands. Well, there are certain things that one should do based on the knowledge of why problem behavior mm -hmm. occurs, and that is minimize our reaction, maximize our reaction to appropriate alternative behavior. So we can all respond to what the science has shown us um, without necessarily being the one to implement the mm -hmm. assessment. Um, I don't know exactly how a cold virus is transferred, but I know I should wash my hands when I've been um, around someone who has a cold. So um, in that sense, I think the functional analysis approach has, has really guided our practice and, mm -hmm. and how we operate in classroom and clinic settings on a day-to-day -day basis. I appreciate having that kind of, uh, the, the big picture look of what was some of the, the more significant, and there's many, as you had said, many in all different areas, mm -hmm. but just to pull out some highlights of what has been some significant work in regards to the implementation of, of interventions for children with autism, so I appreciate that kind of historical look. Mm -hmm. When we think about um, those of uh, those who may be listening to this episode, so administrators, teachers, parents, young adults, interventionists, what advice might you offer to them in order for them to grow professionally, whether it be regarding um, behavior analysis or problem behavior or any aspect, mm -hmm. what would you, what, what advice would you offer to them? Well, I, I think it, it might sound a little cliche, but some cliches are true, as they say. Um, and, and that is that when you wake up and go to work in the morning, it, in a sense, shouldn't really feel like work. Mm -hmm. I mean, there may be some effort, but it, it's almost like what I was saying with the student. We want the student to approach us and interact with us. We want to feel good about approaching our work and engaging in our work. And uh, I often tell a story that uh, one time I w was at work and I got on an elevator and I heard somebody say, oh, it's Monday, like that. And I thought to myself, I've never felt that way. And I, I'm so happy that I've never felt that way. I've always felt like it's Monday. There's right. there's something <laughs> to, that can be done where we can help people, where we can um, really find out some interesting information. Um, and whenever it started to stray from that for me, I tried to figure out why and get myself back on track. So in terms of advising people in their own field, um, if it starts to feel like a drag, if it starts to feel like it's something you don't enjoy doing anymore, figure out why and see if there's a way you can change it. Maybe you need to get a higher degree so you can have a, a leadership role. Maybe it's that the um, 
particular population of individuals you're working with is not your main interest and then you can figure out how to make a transition to that other group and there could be a, a number of reasons but sometimes it just involves some reflection on mm -hmm. what is important to you professionally and um, the reason that we have to examine that is because all of us spend so much time in our professional lives if you're not enjoying your profession and um, approaching your uh, profession you're not approaching and enjoying your life because so much of your time is spent in it so i think that perspective the same as what i was recommending with our uh, in interactions with our students goes for ourselves with our pos uh, our own positions and uh, and as i said differential reinforcement is a way of life so i'm thinking that way every moment I love it. I love the idea of whatever we apply for our students in this escape versus approach, we want to apply for ourselves sure. in our own professional and personal life as well. So I think that's great advice. So I so appreciate that. Thank you, Tim, for stopping by Patent Pod today. We're excited to have you here. We're excited that, that you're at the National Autism Conference, and we know that everyone attending will gain so much knowledge from you. So thank you so much. I've enjoyed it. It's one of the best conferences. Thank you. It is phenomenal. Mm -hmm. Thank you to all of you in the field. You inspire educational growth in your students every day. A special thank you to John Radsdale for producing this podcast. We'll see you next time on Patent Pod.